25 years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Werewolf the Apocalypse. All right, everybody, welcome to the final, final recording of uh, at least the main book of the 25 years Vampire the Masquerade presents, Werewolf the Apocalypse First Edition. And what I mean by final is it's part three, we wrap it all up. I'm going through it because there were some distinctive points we definitely wanted to go through uh, because, well, they're kind of fun, right? Exciting to go over in this book. And then there's some things we're just going to go right over because they get edition updated and they're not really, they're, they're impactful if you were still playing this first dead book. Nobody's playing the first dead book. So, <laughs> and, if you, and if you are somewhere in a far off, thanks. Awesome. Way to do it. Write it right to us. Let us know what's, how you're having fun with it. That's all I got to say there. But before we get rolling... I want to say a big welcome to, of course, our crew we got with us here today. Nick? Hey! Chris? Hey! Also known as DJ. Also yes. known as Wong. Yes. <laughs> okay. And now we have with us today also Brennan. Hey, everyone. Perfect. Um, so now that we got that out of the way, we're going to do something even a little more fun. This book has something pretty cool, and we felt that we wanted to go with it, through it with you guys live. And what it is, is that in the character build section, you get back, to, get past the typical crunch, right? Where you pick your gifts, your auspice, your natures, and all that fun stuff. And uh, get to your abilities and things like that. Um, what if you didn't have your concept fully fleshed out? And we're going to pretend we ha- we don't. Like we're playing Werewolf and we just kind of did the mechanics first and we're kind of dragging our feet. And then ST Nick goes, I'm going to have you roll the rest of it fantastic collectively we're going to be as one and we're going to go through the question section to flesh out our background after we've built our sheet now if you're wondering isn't this kind of backwards weren't you supposed to have like a concept first and we're in first ed first ed you built first (laughs) right built first come later everybody has a method and style Uh, clearly you know you build your war machine and then explain it later on we're going to stick to that method. Sound good? I mean, the, uh, they, they say that it should take you 15 minutes to build your character in the book. I have never built a character in 15 minutes. Mostly I because I stare loosely at the wall and try to come up with ideas that will <laughs> hit me like out of the ether by like some random idea comet. But it, it never quite happens that way. Uh, you're one of the epiphany character creators. I see. you got to wait for that sudden moment of inspiration. Yeah. Lord knows I am. All right, so let's hit it. Let's hit it. I say that we're, uh, uh, let's just go with Hamid. Just keep it simple. Something everybody knows we can follow along with. What you guys think? Mm-hmm. Easy good mode. for me. Yep. We're good? Easy mode, big numbers. Uh, Brent Trines, this is a prelude. Can I get a little prelude tune from you? Uh, no. <laughs> all right, all right. Nobody have a prelude tune? I have one. No. Okay, we'll, we'll start the prelude now. Brent Trine, if you could roll the die for us, sir. Okay. It's nine. Nick, you are up. What does nine give us? In this question, what was your family life like? Uh, nine tells me that I, my parents were understanding folks. All right. They, uh, they, you know, they were uh, they're very tolerant. and under- This is so far from true. They were very <laughs> understanding. <laughs> Nick, remember this is character. We're not talking about real life here. Separate. Separate. Right. Okay. <laughs> So this is pertaining to obviously I'm a guru. It seems mm-hmm. like that they were very yep. fairly tolerant and understanding of what's going on. Might have been kinfolk, maybe not, or maybe they were just not in their head. Of course, baby. Of course, you're a werewolf when you choose to be. Okay, yep. no doubt. Yep. Who knows? Who knows? All right. So, what's the next question we got here, DJ? 
Oh, geez. Uh, next question is, what was your birth pack? Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. That's I, back. Yeah. Oh, why didn't you fit in? That's your die roll, Brandon. There you go. We got seven. Seven. Socially challenged. You were a socially challenged individual. Getting along with others and being liked was usually beyond you. Maybe your parents right. liked you too much, and maybe they were too understanding. That wow, okay, I can almost see this happen. This is weird. Helicopter kinfolk. <laughs> <laughs> you stay away from the Mohammeds. All uh, right. So we're saying that he was socially just wasn't quite good. A very uh, insular, one might say. All right. So next question falls to me. This says here, what were your interests? All right. Six. Couch potato. You think that yes. TV is high culture and spend a good deal of your time gaining culture. What? What is this? What? What is this? Okay. You, nah. Who gains culture from a freaking couch? Listen, TV culture. Okay? That's what it's referring to. So that's exactly what we got. <laughs> we got understanding parents who accept the fact that you're socially challenged, probably a little insular, and that all your information comes from watching TV. You're a couch potato. Hey, man. Some of the best lessons I've learned in life come from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> <laughs> and officially dating me and Nick. Absolutely. I'm sorry. <laughs> Boy meets world. <laughs> I love that show. I love that show. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I grew up watching it like after after middle school every day. But I'm anyway, sorry. Hannah Montana. Hannah no. Montana. Hannah Montana. I'll be whatever Hannah age I want to be. You don't right. know me. Off the rails. Off the rails. Yeah, okay, look. Absolutely. Serious concept. They said 30 minutes. Let's, let's keep it going. Focus. Okay. All right. All right. So the next question, and we have we're back to Nick. What were you like in school? Oh, I'm sorry, Brent. I saw that look. Brent, yeah. please. Next question. Oh. Uh, what were you like in school? Just in case you wanted to read it. It looked like you wanted I, to. I did want to read it. I was yeah. I was sad. What do we got? We got eight. A metal head. Leather and loud music were the only things that mattered in your life when you weren't watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> That's a um, interesting yes. way of phrasing that. Oh my gosh. I can picture it now. Is this like a banging on the couch. Listening to Power Wolf all day. <laughs> or like I, Man of War. I don't know why we got away from this chart. We're having a blast doing this, folks. This is clearly so, something that, that needed to be kept with. Uh, I'm making... Nah. This is great. Seriously, how many people had trouble building... This is a blast. That's all I'm saying. Okay, let's keep it going. Uh, next question, Nick. What was the kidnapping like? Now, let's pause. Let's pause. If you... <laughs> This is usually a question I ask my victims um, on the uh, the postmortem survey or his dates. Either way, uh, no, so so off the bat, what do we have here with this character creation of werewolf first edition? Is if you were dropping down to play a game and you're just use this to quickly build it, this is gonna derail. Like, mm-hmm, what yep. was the kidnapping? What did I miss? Something? I thought what? All right, so what they're referring to here is the fact that uh, remember in their perception when you're going through your first change. It's assumed there's already a group of wolves or a, cer- a certain experienced werewolf that's stalking you to find you to help you through that process and bring you back to the sept, right? That's the referring yep. you, but it obviously takes you away from whatever life you had bringing you into that werewolf life now, and that's what this chart's rolling for. So let's get that roll going, Brennan. Five. Unreal. 
You still have trouble accepting that any of this is happening or has happened to you. You're in denial? So you were kidnapped and you don't believe it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a werewolf, I promise! I just like chasing cars! (laughs) (laughs) All right, DJ, you're going to take the next question for us, sir. How well are you assimilated into your tribe? Bold decision. Five. Five. Fight for respect. You're constantly trying to prove yourself and be accepted as an equal. Now, this is cool. Because if you look at where we started to where we're at, it was understanding parents, socially challenged, couch potato, metal-headed school. Like a lot of, a weird antisocial bent to it. But now, you become a guru. And, and you're in, you know, well, I forgot. Unreal kidnapping. You're uncertain of that. But now you're fighting to prove yourself. Constantly. Yep. Like you are, you're, it's like you're reforging your character that way. I kind of dig that. The way it's rolling out, it's very, very doable, right? Um, Brennan, I'm going to let you handle this, because I don't want to skip you again. It's my Mia mm-hmm. Culpa. You can take my turn. What's the next Thank question? Thank you. What was it like to return home? Three. You never returned. You never went back. You hated your family anyway. Ouch. What? This guy's a real what? son of a bitch, isn't he? Hold on. No. Let's back up a couple of spaces. We had like a loving, understanding family. Like, Listen, yeah, maybe they, they were helicopter you. parents. But what? Never go back? I, uh... Listen, they, they, they were constantly on you all the time about everything. Why are you always listening to Black Sabbath? Why are you always sitting on the couch <laughs> watching TV? And the 90210 stuff. Like, it, it was just nonstop. I mean, they're like, I understand you're just going through a phase. It was like, come on, get away from me. Let me live my life, people. Ma, my stop hugging me. You're making me weak. God, you're always bringing me food. I need to be out Everyone keeps making fun of me at the sept. <laughs> If the get offenders ever find out about this, I'm done. Oh man, that's too good. <laughs> All right, and that's and that's that's us wrapping it up to the end, right? You got that going yeah. on, uh, yeah. to sort of give you a little idea of what it is in the beginning, right? Now, that's a fun thing. I, what do you guys? Th- I think they should have kept it. What do you guys think? I I absolutely think they should have kept it. One hundred percent. At the very least, they could have at least kept it somewhere, like in an appendix or mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, it's fun. It's a it's a neat gimmick. I don't know if uh, the seventh time around is going to be as awesome. I think it is. I totally think it is. How how do you not have fun? We literally came up in less than fifteen minutes with the ability to create an entire backstory out of this. Uh, I'm a I'm a actually disagree with Nick. Uh, there are there are several games that do this, like uh, uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord is one I can think of off the top of my head where they have this a lot, like all over the place, and that's uh, okay. No, no, keep it going. I was like, Shadow of the Who Demon Lord? I've never no, okay. heard of this game. So, context, it's another game, right? It's like, uh, kind of D&D. Oh, fuck it. Say whatever. it isn't so, was sir. Talking Say it isn't else? so. Which you he let just him finish. Me. I... He's only little. Let him finish. Come on. I've seen Jesus, this in savages. other games, right, where you have tables to roll. And I, I found them fun. Like, you come up with some combinations you never would have thought of, even if you read through each list, right? Mm-hmm. I think these are fun things. Um, you're more than correct. I think uh, today's day and age, uh, we want a little help when we play a game. We want it to be more of a game. Let's just call it what it is, folks. A role-playing game is a serious game. It requires focus, dedication, understanding, learning terms, and everything else. That's already hard. And it's going to be a work in progress for a lot of people who aren't going to take a second job to learn how to do this game like experts off the bat. Therefore, these little handouts and assistance to make it fun 
are a must. They need to be there because they hold you to it, right? And it saves the storyteller time. We just random rolled and came up with a story every step of the way rather easy. We probably, granted, more likely than not, all four had very different stories we could tell off of what was rolled. Yep. Proofs in the pudding. They did well with this. They, they need to bring that back, is my opinion. Um, and, obviously, Rifts is another game that folks might have heard of as well that does this randomly. And that's, uh, you know, if you're having trouble coming up with a concept, here's people who did it. So we're going to transition, though. We got this guy made, our metalhead couch potato, who will never return home to his awesome parents. And we're going to think of, well, how do we take this little miscreant, and how are we going to storytell for him? And uh, to that end, we got a really challenge and question effect of what is storytelling in Werewolf. Um, Nick, when you think about storytelling, uh, what, what is storytelling? What, what is it at all, according to this game? Storytelling is creating that that shared space that environment that bringing people to the table to have a good time it's it's not entirely different from any other world of darkness supplement it's the same reasons why we get together to enjoy this hobby is there any uh any any further assistance we want to slap onto that anybody as it pertains to Werewolf, I think um, this segment, number one, makes you the Galliard for the most part. I think more than anything, especially because of it being Werewolf, it makes you kind of feel like you're sitting around the fire and telling this grand thing. And I guess it's one way to kind of give you that in-depth type of look to it. Um, but moving forward from there, I, I think what, when we get to the conflicts, I think is, it's definitely worth mentioning. And I don't know if we're, we're ready for re- to reach out to that, are we? Because if we are, then I love talking about it. Well, we're not at the conflict yet. We're talking about the art of storytelling itself. Ah, well, yeah. then, yes, I can wait a until lot, yeah. A lot of people miss this, and it's uh, it can't be missed. Storytelling is literally sitting down the campfire, like you said. It is chilling with people and then telling a magnificent story filled with ups and downs, detail, points, and purpose. And it's filling the heads with this imaginative world, capturing the attention of our audience, and keeping them engaged as we move along. Except, do you feel the only storyteller is the storyteller at the table? No, players are storytellers to a degree, even if it's uh, specific to their characters, right? Like they're coming up with the stories, they're they're portraying their actions. They're an actor in this, but they also directly influence what direction the story is going to take. Right, and I don't think entirely this section makes you arms you for that, right? It's really looking from just the point of the storyteller and what it is, Mm -hmm. right? Of what you would do. I think it is a smart thing to point out, right? It tells you that a storyteller has to have a goal. Right, we we know that, and we say we know that, but do we really? A lot of people say, okay, well, if a storyteller has a goal, what's what's the goal of you telling the story? Well, you're gonna have motivations that why you sat down to run the game. You're here to entertain the players. You're also here to have a uh, it's an investment of time for you. It's an investment of time for them. But what are you here to do? What's going on? That's pivotal. That's 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 important. That's everything for somebody sitting to agree to a storyteller because what they're saying is, what's your commitment? That's another way of saying it. When you yeah. agree to put on that role, that's what you're committing to do. Now, in order to storytell, we also have to have guidelines too, right, guys? Mm-hmm. And we've talked to death on previous podcasts about guidelines, but if you're just in tuning into Werewolf, just know these guidelines aren't any different than what we talked about previously for people in the past. But for folks maybe new to Werewolf for the first time hearing it or just tuning into the podcast now, understand that the guidelines they're talking about is what we're going to discuss with everybody uh, for general principle of being at the table. Every home game tends to be different, but you might discuss, uh, well, I'll start it. You might discuss everyone's comfort level uh, with gore, horror, and gothic punk uh, themes. 
That yeah. might be one thing. What's another thing we might talk about, DJ? Rules and how we're going to use them. Are we going to follow rules as is, or do we let the storyteller be the one to determine whether or not we're going a narrative route or not? Got another one, Nick? Uh, the uh, the themes and moods that you want to do in your chronicle, right? Because players are going to want to enjoy this as much as the storyteller is. I agree. And uh, Brentron, what about you? I, I had something. I lost it. Uh, probably <laughs> house rules. Right, like everyone, there's everyone goes through this book, and there's some things they don't like. Right, so what what things are they going to change for their own specific game to move forward with? Right, I agree, I agree. Things like that are what you're going to talk about. It's not necessarily directly talking about the game, but it could be. But you're about to get detailed. So right now we're starting very abstract, and we're narrowing it down. Right, I'm the storyteller. So the idea, what I got, I want you here. Here's what we got Mountain Dews in the fridge, but please contribute. We order pizza at seven. You know, we end game at ten. All this stuff is going to come out here as you organize what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But then we get to knowing the rules. You may think to yourself, not critical, but this is the ultimate argument of every game. Mm-hmm. DJ mentioned it, and why he yeah. mentioned it is because you will never find. Your biggest rules lawyers are the people who want to play this game, right? They're the folks who know what to take and exactly what they have in mind. And who knows how long they've been at home waiting for their exact plan to launch in an unsuspecting would-be storyteller who's going to represent the worm, and they're bringing the hero of Gaia, right? Boom. They got the idea. Not a bad thing. Bring the hero of Gaia. It's totally okay. However, what if there were some rules that you just didn't like? Or what if there's, like, like the classic one, the botch system. We've heard up and down the spectrum about that, right? People who, if I get a success, why does it get negated just because there's a one? Can't that one just be matter if I don't get any successes? Why does it take away? I got 15. No, I got two. No, I botch every time. It's up (laughs) and down. And you Mm -hmm. you need to be able to talk to it. Another big one, willpower. I've played games where people want to know about every time I roll, I could blow a willpower and get auto success. I never fail. I'm awesome, right? It's not what it says, right? And, and we need to be aware. There's only so much you could do with it. Be aware of your willpower. All that. Your ST needs to be there to talk to everybody about it. That's mm-hmm. important. And that's one way to go about it. There are other people who say, ah, forget about the rules. I'm here to tell a story. You're here to play. Let's get at the game. That's okay, too. Right? You're agreeing to that, and that's the point of the start of this uh, whole conversation. However, something I know Nick is very good at getting into storytelling styles. And Nick, can you tell us a little bit about what that style is? I mean, we could talk a long time on it, but give us your synopsis of what you feel they mean when they refer to storyteller style. Storytelling styles in here, uh, they, they talk about different, uh, different techniques that the storytellers use to draw people in. There's the rules lawyer, which we've already brought up. We're familiar with. This is the person who time and time again understands, nay, even memorizes the, uh, the, the rule systems in the book has them on hand and really insists on being accurate um, with, with kind of how the rules are played out, how the roles are made. And, uh, and they and their players enjoy that system of playing the game. Another style is the freeform style, which relies mostly on narration. Isn't so heavy set on rolling dice. You know, people are just here to tell a story. Things go by quickly, smoothly. They like to. They have general ideas of what their capabilities and processes are. Uh, that those are two almost opposing styles, but both accomplish the main goal of storytelling, which is having a good time. And and here's the sticky thing, because that's everything in a nutshell. It's well said, Nick. 
Um, when we transition from styles, though, we start talking about the players are going to be in the game. They have a concept they mention right here out of the book, which is, uh, you know, we got to deal with the players or, or working with the players, I think is what they actually use. But what, what do you think it means by that, DJ? Being able to have everyone pretty much on the same page with you. Um, because one of the things that we mentioned is when you come to the story, as we were mentioning a little bit earlier, everyone should have an understanding of what type of rules we're playing, what type of story we're telling. But everyone should also be on the same page of what type of fun we're going to be able to have. You know, if there's any types of concerns between each other player, they should be already on the table. Perhaps you might even come across a player who might just not be the right player for your particular troop. You air that all now uh, rather than continue with the story where there might be a problem down the future way. Yep. I mean, it's also great to be able to pull people in off the sidelines and sit people down and we're hogging the limelight. Like be able to share and direct and work with your players when you're going through your game. I couldn't agree more. Um, and another thing I would add is that when you bring all these people to the table, it's probably important to go over um, who doesn't work with your storytelling style. What I mean by that, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but we all know that if you story told and sat down, especially with your home group, there's going to be someone you either conflict with or don't quite see eye to eye when you were players. What's mm -hmm. that going to be like when you're storytelling? And sometimes it's the magic trick. If you're storytelling and you're a player, there's no conflict somehow. <clears throat> it's weird how that works out. But if you're even level, like either you guys are competing or what goes on, it pays to talk with that person to see if you can work it out. If it's going to work at all, and you should. Because otherwise it's going to really kind of interrupt your flow and what everybody's trying to do. And we all want to have fun and kind of come to that. If you're at a convention, tell them that you ran a free ticket space. And unless they got an original ticket, they got to go because the spot's reserved for someone with the original ticket. They say that to me all the time. Okay, <laughs> I'm just, just used to it. Just FYI. That's only Gen Con, though. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's happened to me. And <laughs> we're moving from there. All right. Uh, so at Storyteller, we're actually now officially working on a story because we know the parameters. We know what we agreed to. We know the storyteller style. We know the players that are going to be involved in the, in the table play. Um, but what are we talking about when we say story? What do you guys feel that they're getting at when they say, okay, what's the story we're going to play in? And I'm the storyteller building it. Uh, it's the story of the, well, in this case, the pack, right? Like, why are they here? What are they doing? What mission are they are they undertaking or whatever, right? Um, what What is the central driving focus? Like, is it some, some magical thing, like a ring they got to take to destroy because it can't be destroyed anywhere else? Or what is, uh, what, what is the reason that they're the focus of what they're going through? At the, at, at the end of the day, a story is, is, is very simple. It's just a sequence of things that happen over time. Uh, things can be planned, unplanned. They can be driven. They can be improvised. Uh, but that's really what a story is. And so what they nailed down in this section, too, is make sure that you have a loose framework on your story so that you can accommodate those kind of mix-em-ups and randomness. What I like about this is that the difference in generation. I could tell Brentron, I definitely know DJ is as well, come from an area where they already have that advanced. They read the, the part in their new book when they first got in this hobby told them a very advanced look at storytelling that we didn't have back in 92. Right? I don't know if you caught that. From what Nick just said, and Nick, Nick read the first edition book, read that storytelling section, and they broke it down, and they left it very basic in 92. It was, a story is this. You tell a story, start to finish, this is what you have, here are the components, and that's all you're going to get out of this book. Bernstein came at you with a PhD in storytelling, right? He started talking about the elements and the player concern, the immediate focus. He did that naturally. That's not in this book. I'm not chastising, but I'm pointing out that what he does without breathing 
right? Is just the advancement of where we go. So I want everybody to keep that in mind. It's not wrong here, but we're focusing on what they tried to inject. And so rolling with that very thought and idea. So if we know a story is start to finish a complete thing and everyone knows what a story is, how do we build that story? Right? And one of the, one of the things it tells you to start on is to have a good story. We got to have a conflict and DJ, Mm -hmm. what type of conflicts are we talking about? We're having all types of conflicts that normally isn't seen in in vampire game, right? What makes a werewolf game unique in and of itself? Werewolves have many enemies, up to and including themselves. There's the fight against the worm, um, which you think is the inherent enemy because of its corrupting influence or what they consider corrupting. Fight against the weaver, which normally isn't seen because even though you live in this world where there are structures all around you, that structure isn't supposed to, it's supposed to be within balance. And so it's interesting to see Garu having to fight to stop that advancement. And a fight against the wild, which is also interesting because even though you fight to help the wild kind of survive in certain cases, sometimes certain spirits and or situations are way too wild even for werewolves to, to allow it to happen. They must call the herd to a certain degree. Um, there's and fight. To, and to, Go ahead. Just, just real quick, there's a lot of them. Yep. <laughs> so the first three right there, the triad that you nailed down, it's Guru versus the worm or the weaver or the wild. And how you could focus on that is the conflict, right? Which is that important part, which you've highlighted beautifully. On this basis, though, Nick, what are some of your favorites? Like, if you had to pick one or two out of here, what is your conflicts that are almost like your go-tos or that you like to play? Or be a story? if you were storytelling it right now, what would you build for? Um, I always, always enjoy playing Guru versus the Worm. And that's because it is... It is nothing your players would ever naturally buck against. It's uh, going against the worm is inherent in their nature. It's what everyone shows up to play this game for, um, without question. Uh, what I always found interesting was Garu versus the Wild, because um, you'd naturally think that Garu are are almost like children of the Wild or, or somehow related to the Wild, and and of course they wouldn't be in conflict with the Wild, but the Wild is the most dangerous of the triad in my opinion and i love that aspect that's wild (laughs) (laughs) he did it why would you do this (laughs) now it's cool how they talk about this right i'm gonna i'm gonna throw you some examples here some people don't get it right just like you said it's interesting to have it in here when you see guru versus the worm nobody needs an explanation Mm. the books do their damnedest to explain everything under the sun of what that could mean right and they do it well uh, when it comes to the Weaver, though, right, they're talking about the influence of mankind and how to fight back. We could do the echo terrorist effect of someone chopping down a forest or maybe an oil spill or, or something of, of such or a potential oil spill, a disaster yep. of some sort. We get that. It is the hardest to think of the wild until you throw something out like global warming or you throw something out there like a hurricane that rocks ashore or a California fire of epic proportions yep. never seen before. Mm-hmm. And... This says, what's the backdrop behind that? And it's highlighting the fact that it could be nature battling back, which is the point. But the Guru, mm-hmm. mm, they're supposed to handle humans. Are they? Is that all? Well, there's a balance there, right? Or throw it to your players as, what is that supposed to be? And that's a great opportunity to have NPCs going back and forth and mentors helping them think it through. Someone gives them a task. Maybe the spirits contact them. There's a lot going on there in just that one conflict. But... Should a conflict only have, or excuse me, should a story only have one conflict? No, mm-hmm. I, I don't definitely think so. not. I think once one conflict for an entire story would be incredibly boring. I don't know about boring, but how about linear? Would that be better said. Yeah, 
Like yep. you could yeah. see it coming. Yeah. Right. You knew you knew what to build to that. And uh, and it's up to you. Like sometimes people are going to run a story, and they say that uh, you know because they give you an idea of what to do it. But most people go a story is each game session. So start to finish tonight, we're only having a conflict versus the wild. Next one will be the Weaver, and I'm only going to do three stories, and I'm done. And then we switch mm-hmm. STs. Ah, who knows, right? But we're going to stick to the flow here. Don't me derail on that. Um, those are some sample conflicts, and I, and I agree they they got some good ones in there. But now that we have our story idea, right, which is general, we said start to finish. Here's what it's going to be about. Now we're adding details, and we got a conflict to help add details in. Now we're looking at what sort of dramatic moments can we put in here, right? The drama of it. And uh, to that end, I'm just sort of jump on it, right? Just kind of get in, and we'll just get in a mix here with your ideas to you guys. Uh, when we think of uh, drama, it's not just conflict. There's the innate drama of how to handle uh, these uh, these events that are going to be coming up for the players. Sometimes players don't know how to react to a given situation. And the drama could be something as simple as a mentor gets injured in a phone call, helps them know that they're, they're sick and at the care and they need some help. And that no matter what the players are doing at that moment, that could generate some the feels, right, to get them to go to react, to role-play that aspect of that relationship. It can also be a thing to use mood towards the drama, right? The mood of the event was supposed to be somber or something that is uh, is going to shock them to action, and that's what the mentor serves and delivers. And it's, it's something very innocent, i.e. it doesn't have to be complex, at least I think. Do you guys feel that when you plan out the drama for a story that it has to be something incredibly detailed? I don't think so. Like, uh, in my opinion, the drama naturally shows up because drama is that moment just before something happens. As long as it happens afterwards, drama is great because drama is that tension. It's that thickness in the air where, where people know that inevitability is just around the corner. Will he pull the gun? Will he not pull the gun? What's going to happen in this moment? There's an action that's about to happen, and it just tenses the entire situation. Sir, that's your drama. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I would add that the the importance of drama, and just look at it this way. They say drama, I say what's happening. It's as simple as that. <laughs> we tell a story, right? We, we, we tell a story. You have conflict. You say you're telling a story. You're a storyteller. All right, what's happening? What's going on? What's the purpose for us getting together as werewolves to do something? And that's going to be your plot. Whether guy is being raped by rakes across your flesh, as the descriptions say at the beginning. Well, all right, let's go and mess up a rake. Who's holding the rake? I'm destroying Home Depot. This is wrong, and you're wrong, and you're getting messed up, Home Depot. Right? I'm going to rage there. And if my card's good, maybe grab a soda on the way home. And I'm just saying, you know, that's, that's something you could do. But what happens... In the course of the story should be the details of the drama. Now, that's a big, wide area, First Ed. You don't really give us an area to paint it in. Some of us may be familiar with things like setting. Mm-hmm. Right? Your setting is one of the biggest contributors to drama because of the, the innate backdrop of what's supposed to be there. Right? If my setting is going to be a, uh, I don't know, like a, a hospital that's somehow corrupt and nefarious things are being done to people and folks are being discharged with amazing abilities, so they seem. Later on, falling over and being found in, I don't know, a seedy hotel in Mexico, tub of ice, urban legend, missing organs sewn up terribly. Why did my throat do that? But anyway, you get the idea. Apparently, I felt very sensitive about that as I went towards my kidney. Um, were you all right when you were in the hospital? Like, I was... What is- I was 
I, I, I made it. Okay. Morgan's intact, I think. All right. So, Just making but, sure. But, but, but the setting here is just basically saying whatever you do to set them up and where they're going to be at is sort of putting the stage together. Drama. Right? And we more or less get that. Can't beat that drum hard enough. But then, Werewolf, the Apocalypse are stories based on heroics. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, what, about that? what about that, Nick? If it's based on heroics, what, what do we mean by that? The, the heroics of this means that the entire purpose of your story is for your players to dramatically change the world that they are in. They are the agent of action in, in your story. It doesn't get left up to the, the Sept Alpha off to the side NPC. It doesn't get left off to the cool guy in the back of the book um, over in this section to handle it. Your players change the world and they do it through heroic action. I always I always read like werewolf stories as being like almost Beowulf esque, right? Like your pack is like Beowulf going up to take out like Grendel, right? Because there's always this big like build up for that, right? And yep. e- just progressing on and probably ending like Beowulf versing the dragon, right? Like that that yeah. ultimate end, that glorious death. This this book kind of coins that phrasing where it tells you that every player in Werewolf should have a heroic purpose. Right? You're the players. When it asks when will you rage, it's not asking everybody in Werewolf canon that White Wolf came up with for them to be the heroes and steal the show so you can understand who to follow. It's for you to make your Werewolf character. You know, it's as if, if we looked at it a different way, we're all role-playing when we think about playing Werewolf and it says, we're not born yet because we haven't made the character and Guy is hurting and we got to combat the worm. When do we enter and tell that tale of how we defeat it or stop it or thwart it or die in the try? But when we step in yep. to do that, we are the heroes there to accomplish just that. And the storyteller is there to tell that tale around that campfire, the heroics of us. And that's the that's the coolest part about this game. In all the world of darkness, there are only two games that give you this element of you should do that. This one and Changeling. And this this is the lead one. This is the one that draws them in, right? And that's, that's where it is. So, um, that said... DJ, because I know a lot. I know you know a lot about this because you and I are villains when it comes to the mood of any game. We we insidiously play with it and put it in game. And to help everyone out, the mood when you refer to it in a story, it's someone will tell you it's not vital. I I differ, but that's just me. It's vital because you want the players to consistently feel something as they're playing the game, right? If players enter the game and everybody's laughing, having a good time, and you agree to run a game that's going to keep that theme then it's mirth. It's a little slapstick. We're going to keep it funny. And we're going to keep it going, and that's there. But if everybody sits down and you tell them you're going to tell a game that, I don't know, is based on this action, but this action, to steal it from Brentron, is going to be Beowulf-esque, then we're probably going to be dealing with hopelessness. Is going to be one of the many moods in there, right? An unstoppable mm-hmm. force that keeps showing up, and I may be a badass, but man, I can't keep my men alive. They're tired. They're hungry. The king's demanding a resolution. I'm not the baddest in the land. There's these challenges and it's terrifying and I'm cold and all right. So that's one. And I'm going to keep that tension there constant on the mood there to leave the player to constantly battle. So they're, they're going to feel it right as they go through it. But that just means when they get through the success, DJ, what should that feel like? So if drama is the, what action are we taking? And it's people's 
you know, actions that kind of create these things back and forth, those dynamic sparks, mood is pretty much the glue and the backdrop in which you do it to. And what's also good about mood and why it's also important for purposes of storytelling is with the right mood, your players will also be of the same mind. Much like Bob mentioned, if it's going to be slapstick or beer and pretzels, you'll know it. Everyone's going to goof out the table. We know that we're, we're playing higher heroics. Everyone's wearing capes. You know, we're Captain Planet Garu uh, versus, you know, <laughs> s- setting. I mean, someone's got to carry the heart ring, right? But um, <laughs> you could also. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> but the opposite of that is to give that somber mood. What if you are in that dying world? What if the way that you're painting the story, especially with your pack, is that hopelessness? And all you have is the cathartic experience of just making one small motion, whether it be for purposes of your sept, your territory, your pack. And to keep that going is what's going to get everyone at the table to feel the exact same way. So when they act, when they role play, everyone's on the same page. And I think for me, mood, as Bob was mentioned before, it's our bread and butter. It's literally how you get your players to buy into your game as well. So that's how I feel about mood. And and to that end, because I feel uh, simplicity here uh, needs to be, we need to kind of circle back to one thing. Um, And Nick, for everybody out there listening, and there's all sorts of people who will be talking heads about what plot is. Can you tell us, in your own words, what's a plot? Uh, plot are things that happen right, and things to accomplish. It, it's, a, it's a series of events that start, that, that are just, you know, your, your players go through in, in a story. They're like, plot is, is, is simply things to do. It's, uh, it's tiny events. It's, uh, it's going to this club and meeting this person. It's, uh, you know, chewing on this tree bark because it gets you all loopy. It's it's just tiny little things that compose of the entire flavor of your story cake. St- story story okay. cake. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're eating this story cake. We're going to go with it. So I'm going to jump over here, though, to if that's plot, theme. Now, you said very, I'm going to quote you here on what you had said. You said theme is why your story matters, right? Difference between a random event and a story. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. I love that. Can you extrapolate on that? Yeah, uh, a theme starts out what your entire objective in this game is. When you sit down with your players and you say, what are we doing here? Theme paints that picture. It's the colors that that you have. Or if we were going to put this as a as a cake reference, right? The theme is your is your sponge, right? It's your basic flavor that's going to be the awesome middle structure of the story that every other flavor has to blend with because if your players are running around in Superman capes and you're playing in a dystopian like a Final Fantasy 7 Shinra ruled domineering world it's just not going to work out because sadness does not mix with jovial right so theme uh, it, 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 matter, it, it solidifies everything into a, a, a precise course I, I agree I agree. From the cake boss. Be from the cake boss. This guy. All right. <laughs> Spirit World plays a massive role in where if the apocalypse, at least according mm-hmm. to first that, I think it's very true. Uh, maybe it doesn't hold for everyone that way because, you know, depending on games, I've seen games more in the real world than not. But their goal was to take care of the real battle right in the Umbra or the Spirit World. Always was meant to do that, right? And uh, the yep. point is, is because we can go Kronos, we can have it out, we can do whatever we're doing. Because what happens to the spirit world affects the real world. And um, maybe not immediate. Might be as subtle as just an emotional change. It may be 
as dramatic as you choose to, and that's up to the ST, of course, and what they intended. Uh, but it's something that we can't sleep on. And it, you feel free to play with it. That's why it's there. Because it's mentioned, I do plan on segueing it after I make one point. In here, it talks about a chronicle. And uh, it's very, very rare we step on chronicle. And uh, I am skipping over two things. They're advanced storytelling tips. We go way beyond this in other books. We're not going to get into it here. And I think they're interesting ideas and bold for now. But they're definitely outpaced in later material. So for those listening to this to get an idea of what to try or what to do, we'll get into that in later books. Uh, but the uh, aspect here I want to nail on is a chronicle build. It's something where they distinguish the difference between a story and a chronicle. A story may be only a series of weeks, mm-hmm. right? In other words, an objective that you want the players yeah. to go through. I'm going to handle this plot story, and we're going to go through it, and then we're done. And uh, that's part of it, but it's part of the chronicle itself. A chronicle can take years. Mm-hmm. Right, it's 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 supposed to be an established length of time that you go through. To make it real simple, Game of Thrones every season was telling a part of the chronicle. Right, the overall yep. chronicle, the end game, was what it was always all about. Right, and that's what they're saying. But we saw it in stories, story to story, season to season is where we were at, mm-hmm. and that's yep. that's what they direct you to. So if you had to, what they assume you're doing as a storyteller, storyboard this out. And then build it on down. You somehow had to have the foresight of HBO. Right? In the authors to get your official story out. Uh, let's just say that's a great ideal. You will never do that in the actual. Right? <laughs> Don't ever do that in the actual. I'm telling you, over two decades, you go hard when you start storytelling. And you do plan on a chronicle. And you do have that notebook with 380 pages of pure story and content. And everything to do in it. And we'll all beautiful player interactions. And she'll marry this guy. And the worm comes to corrupt him. And all this. And the big battle. And the big war. And the big this. Meanwhile, most of your players die fighting the guy at the end of the street. Because the rules state that fire sucks against werewolves. And one of them had to have a lot of silver on him when the explosion hit. <laughs> <laughs> you can't predict it, right? It's just going to So prepare for that. Maybe shelter it a bit. And, you know, baby steps. Plan a story? Absolutely. Plan a night of game? Yep. Have a goal. Um, plot out the, what the players want and what they're they're why they're playing werewolf. Have that story. Uh, the chronicle maybe maybe have the story bullet in your home titled story board titled chronicle sitting somewhere in your kitchen. And after every game, that's your note as a storyteller what occurred, so you can plan what happens next and leave it under the heading chronicle, so yep. you can see it in its total. That's my recommendation. But I digress. I mentioned Spirit World. And we're going to spend that time uh, going over because it's, of course, muy importante in Werewolf. That is very important to the unenlightened. and uh, Or just those who somehow didn't understand that phrase. Um, so, and understanding the Tellurian. Uh, Nick, you want to kick us off on uh, what that is or even what the Tellurian represents? So, uh, all right, folks. We're, we're diving into the deep and on this. All right. The... Uh, Tellurian is the entire spirit cosmos, as it were. So it's the makeup of all realms and realities. Things like Earth is just a tiny realm inside this giant cosmos that we know as the as the uh, Tellurian. Arcadia, home of the Fae, uh, that is uh, another piece, a tiny part of that. The Umbra itself. Is, is just a tiny piece of, of all of these things. Um, Gaia is 
these realms as well. And Earth is the nexus where all that stuff meets together. So if you can imagine like those old solar system models from back before like anybody understood really how planets rotated and they always put Earth at the center and everything was around that, it's a lot like that. Only those surrounding globes are just other realms and the Umbra is that space in between, right? So it's the, I like to consider it the primordial ooze of creation and reality as you know it. And uh, the, the weaver is what draws that pattern in and, and sets it into a form. So as you get farther and farther away from these realms, the pattern loosens. And it, it becomes like less, more abstract and less ordered and natural and just becomes chaotic. And it's only where the weaver really touches things that things take shape. Um, the, uh, the closer you are in the Umbra to any of those realms, it, it's almost like a direct reflection. So when you are on Earth and you just flip over to the Umbra, things still follow the same general rules, but they're a little bit different. They're not quite exactly the same. All right, all right. I don't think any of us are 420 enough to quite get this in one go, right? It's not your fault. It's the way it's written, right? But let me rehash this real quick. It's TLDR. Basically, the near umbra is the spiritual representative of reality, mm-hmm. Earth itself, as we know it. But when we get to space, we're in the what again? The deep umbra. All right, that's the deep umbra. Okay, all right. Yep. Now they're so in the near deep- umbra, close to your realms. Right. Deep umbra, the space between the space between this is where lovecraft talks to his evil gods right no um all right it, it, sure maybe there's a there's a lovecraft realm out there you know what they didn't write down every realm because they want to leave it up to you okay sir. okay i like that <laughs> but you'll be shocked they did get there but anyway the point is i knew i know where it goes all right so cheater sorry all right there's something here we got it but then there has to be well, what 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 is created to make this make sense? Now I know this much. I know Gaia created everything. Right? They said that. She's the force of all. Created everything out there. What it does is what she do, it's how she be. And she made the werewolves to deal with the humans. Mm-hmm. She directly did it. They but we they we failed. If we're a group, yeah, we screwed up. Right? <laughs> but where did that come about? Now we understand there are three what they call triad, right? That represent things. You mentioned mm-hmm. them. Just just to yep. rehash them, the weaver. Uh, what does what the weaver govern, uh, DJ? The weaver govern, governs pattern, logical groupings. Um, it, it governs things like order. Um, it also governs thought process. It's kind of hard to explain. It, it's a logical advancement is how they end up putting it. And it's something that is innately built um, that helps also humans kind of succeed forward in a certain way. And that's why we see it in structures and buildings and how they're expanding outward. So, what it, it, it is to be said then, and absolutely I'm going to state this, Weaver didn't exist before mankind. Wasn't there. I'm going to tell you why. Brentron, what's the wild? The wild is change. It's it's regrowth, it's growth, it's uh, like a rebirth. It is the the creation uh, in like a primordial form. Okay, so the wild is the source of this energy that never ends. It just keeps making and throwing it out, right? Yep. So we can see how that's an aspect of Gaia. So the worm, then, Nick, is what? 
the worm is the great balancer between those two, right? If at any point there's too much chaos coming in from the wild or too much order coming in from the weaver, oh, it's bad the- order. Clip order. Mm-hmm. Clip order, right? Let's just, let's ignore that for a second. I'll tell you why in a minute. But just clip order. Okay. It's the uh, it's the worm's job to to balance that out to to remove the parts that are that are in abundance to to bring things into a, a harmony and a symbiosis. And so that makes and sense. And it does it through corruption and decay and death and not know. initially, not initially, right? This is important to get, right? Not initially. In its harmonious best, Gaia had the wild and the worm, and the wild was her source of creation. That's what that represented, and the worm ended. There was there was create and F, a yin and a yang type thing, right? Mm-hmm. Somewhere, the weaver comes in. A powerful force seemingly out of nowhere, and this guy comes in and says, hey, you know what? We're going to bring order to some of the wild here. You can't have all things. We're going to start labeling things, defining things, and... And, and building on things and making our own things and empowering these people to do their own things. And we want growth <laughs> and we want our own way. We ever, if you're the worm, what are we doing? We're trying to make you obsolete. Are we not? Mm-hmm. If you were there to simply end things that were supposed to be ended, that the wild left and was moving about and whatever. And now the weaver's like, no, no, this can't end. It has a purpose. It's going to be added to build on this ideal and this concept. And we label it a tornado. And it's going to ruin according to what we needed to do only when we say. Or we're building concrete or something like that. Horrible with the analogies. But you get the idea. Mm-hmm. There's some force that is interrupting what they got going on. And this force ends up trapping the worm. When they say trap the worm, this is what it's talking about. Yep. Now the worm has to change, right, Nick? Now it has to get fancy. And you were saying it was doing what again? Well, once these uh, once these balances kind of got skewed and and the, the weaver came in and started like you know, squirting that primordial ooze all over the place and giving it funky names. Um, the worm couldn't keep up anymore with everything that was going on because there was permanence. So it came up with this crazy idea of using this weaver's webs to try and corrupt and destroy the actual, uh, the wild stuff that was coming in. And then uh, it, it ended up uh, getting trapped in the pattern by the weaver. And uh, then changed the part of the fundamental aspects of what some of the weaver's webs did by corrupting those webs, but in itself getting driven mad in the process. Right. And the function we see this in reality then is the effect it has directly on mankind caused by mankind because of the gurus in action or the wrong yep. choice taken, right? Because you didn't curb mankind, the weaver just wrecked shop and went crazy in abundance because that happened. The worm went to corruption, corrupting mankind and others and coming up with different ideas to poison and in ruin because that's what it knows to do. And in the process, it's Gaia that's paying the price. Like she's eating herself almost because remember yeah. she created everything. What is this? And the world was in the middle of it, kind of going nuts going, we screwed up. What happened? You know, and how do we fix this? And, and, and here come the heroes. Cause if the worm wins and accomplishes its goal, it's either going to remove the wild or it's going to remove the weaver and when it does either of those, Gaia is no more. That existence is gone. It's going to reset something in a big way. Or bring something worse. They don't know. That's in another book. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> Moving along, though, talking mm-hmm. about the spirit. Well, that's the great conundrum. That's the mm-hmm. If you are theurgists and you're learning about the spirit world, your arguments all are going to come from this. 
philosophy yep. of werewolf discussions of epic proportions can come from this on all sides. And there are, there are books that encompass these exact things, and they're awesome. We'll get to those. But we're going to bounce now to what a Celestine is, right? Because if we're looking at the triad as being the three most powerful, guy sitting at the very top, mm-hmm. then it goes to the triad, then it drops down to what a Celestine is. And uh, what's a Celestine, Brentron? Uh, Celestines are like, uh, they are, they're kind of hard for me to define, honestly. They are like, they're very abstract. They are, uh, things. Well, remember two examples, Mm -hmm. the sun and the moon. Right. Helios and Luna. Those are, uh, those are hard to like, uh, describe in like a spiritual sense, right? Like those are two things that have been honored throughout like, uh, uh, ancient religions. But uh, in in werewolf, they kind of, and I say that be, for a reason. In werewolf, they hold like that that uh, same reverence. These are things that sit at the um, uh, top of the totem pole. But um, um, in werewolf, wow, <laughs> <laughs> that was oh, uh, that was good. That was good. We gotta, I gotta I just, give it to you. That's I was gonna say shameful, but you, yeah, it was good. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So if we drop down there and that's a Celestine, badass, we can get behind that, right? Sun, moon, darkness at noon, whatever. Uh, we yep. get to what serves them, right? Who represents them? And they're they're called Incarna. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's an Incarna, DJ, in your word? Incarnas are pretty much servants of the Celestines. Uh, they are almost like if the Celestines are gods unto themselves and they are the angels, uh, for lack of a better term. They are the servants that walk down. They are free-willed for the most part, but have to exist within the domains of what they were created to do. Yeah, I, I would agree. In this, we would see, like, we, we talk about totems, right? Or we haven't gone in depth. But a totem, what it actually is, has to exist in its own realm if it's an incarna, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when we're yep. talking about Fenris, typically it says a pack knows him. And that's a little totem aspect we'll get to in a second. But we're talking about not a fragment of what Fenris is, that incarna. We're talking about Fenris itself. That That's its own realm. He can't just waltz into reality. And walk around and nudge a pup and tell him to do better and leave is not going to happen, right? <laughs> he needs to have something going for him, and he answers to a higher power, right, yep. in this regard. But to shift gears, uh, that drops down to a totem spirit. Now, a totem spirit, I already said it, that's a sliver of an incarna, right? That means it's an aspect of itself that we, the guru or other pharaohs as we'll get to in later books, can actually contact with and, and talk to and entreat and how we communicate and uh, build a relationship of respect slash worship to that totemic incarna that will empower us with gifts, benefits, or what have you. And in yep. return, we're given rules to live by, right? Because that's the give and take of that relationship. So, seems to me Guru are pretty powerful in that regard, like spiritually, right? They serve directly Gaia by going through uh, this hierarchy, in my opinion. It points that out pretty smooth. Um, yep. But there's got to be something that serves these totem spirits, and I believe they're called jagglings. Nick, what is a jaggling? A jaggling is a fragment of a higher incarna or a celestine. So basically, if you take like a, an incarna force, something like a, like say a waterfall, and you take a tiny aspect of that, say like a like foam or uh, or falling water or, or you know like mist at the uh, at or dewy rocks like those tiny little concepts ideas and fragments of what that is or the deep pool beneath those are all different little tiny jagglings that uh that are 
way less powerful, but they manifest that tiny aspect of those they serve. Okay. Okay, so this this sounds like that this might be somewhere between Jaggling and Totem Spirit would be a Cairn Spirit. Would you agree? Um, yeah, Incarna is definitely like a, a Karen spirit level. Well, I don't know about Incarna, right? And the only reason why I say that is because if an Incarna is established as being like, you know, Fenris, then I highly doubt there's a Karen that's going to have that level of power. That's a lot of juice, right? That's, that's a magnificent amount in one spiritual part. Maybe. Don't know. Yeah. It's your game. Yeah, it's, it's possible. You could do it. Uh, yep. But uh, typically, out of the books and whatnot, we see that uh, something like a totem spirit that a pack would have, but with a lot more power it could pull on, mm-hmm. would have a purpose in a place and be it a cairn because it's a place of worship. Uh, because uh, think of like, uh, I don't know, let's say we had a national park that was in the city. Probably not going to have an incarna hanging out there, even if it did serve the weaver, because we can't impact reality by that much because of where it is, right? Um, I really so- hope so. Right, we hope that's, that follows that right. logic. We, we're led to believe this far. We won't go too in the weeds, but we get the idea. Um, but let's just say this jaggling that uh, does its thing is great, but it needs servants too. And in here they define them as gafflings. DJ, I am yeah. hoping this is the last weird thing, because I'm, I'm running out of lings to remember here. Yeah. We got jagglings, gafflings. Ha- there, there's nothing else lings, I hope not, uh, at the happens? end here, because that can get confusing. Totally not. I mean, uh, well, rather, it is the last thing on totem pole, quite literally. it is. Uh, the calfling is pretty much like your worker gnome. It's your worker elf. It's In, in other ways of looking at it, it it's your, your cherub. Others are full-fledged angels. This was a little baby one going around. It has no free will, and if it does, that was an accident, because no way, shape, or form did it intend that to be the case. But it's um, it's literally there as a walking energizer buddy doing exactly what it was meant to do. And for the most part, whenever werewolves are looking to create fetishes, they capture one of these little buggers and uh, <laughs> add them to their items. I see Bob you, looking DJ. at me. <laughs> it sucks. Th- thank you, DJ. We're just going to keep going. That was well said. That was DJ, well said. As- DJ, I am so proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, all right. So when we talk about the near umbra, uh, with the, the the you know it's the it's the shadowy reflection uh, of the earthworm, right? And, and uh, we we huh? have that down, and uh, we know what it goes on, and we want to build a cairn. Where would be a good place to have a cairn at, Nick? Um, if I was going to build a cairn, um, I would build a cairn around uh, a place of power where the spiritual energy almost seeps through. Uh, and, and permeates that, that spot, right? All right, so the, so Karen then is not necessarily something you would directly build. There's a method, but not in this sense. We're like, we would find a, I don't know, a, a glade in a forest untouched by anything Weaver-esque. Yep. You know, just calm and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Might be a great fishing spot or a good place to have a sun and rock to go to sleep by or on. Uh, enjoy a day. You know, have fun. If you're not familiar with a sun and rock, that's a southern term. Mm-hmm. We southern boys know. That's when you find a good old place along the creek, and you're going to get out there, the cold water right there, there's heat outside, you just lay back on there, maybe bring your best brew, relax, fake your fishing, because that's what you said you were going to do, and enjoy an afternoon, just relaxation. Take a dip when it gets too hot. Yeah. Sun and rocks are awesome. But anyway, could be a camera. <laughs> it does not have to just be that, though. You might have a place in the city, because I'm thinking of you glasswalker types, that might have the same ability. In this instance, maybe I don't want to be cheesy and say a Tibetan Buddhist monastery temple or whatever, 
uh, that's that's there for it, but you could. Um, but it could just as easily be like an IT, um, what am I thinking of? An IT room. A server room. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. A server room. Because of its connection to the Weaver, but it has a spiritual significance that the ST can ascribe to it. And, and to be just that, based on the totem uh, that would be in place or could be in place. Um, that's pretty cool. So, so it could virtually be anywhere you could justify it being significant. However, um, there's a thing called the gauntlet, though, and I'm a little confused by that. Um, they mentioned it a couple times. What's what's this gauntlet nonsense, uh, Brentron? It is the the wall that separates the uh, Umbra from the real world, right? It's the reason why there aren't just spirits uh, going everywhere they want to be, right? Interacting with everyone uh, in the fleshlands, if if I'm even remembering that term right. It is. It's coined now. All right, there we go. Fleshlands. Yeah, it's the. <laughs> it's the. Uh, God, I shouldn't have said that. It's the boundary between the near umbra and uh, the real world. All right, that's simple enough. And they refer to it as the gauntlet, mm-hmm. you know, because when you're going from the spirit to the fleshlands, you want to make sure that you have, you know, there's a little difficulty. But it's interesting. Do we yet know why there's a gauntlet? Yeah, uh, we do. the The gauntlet was uh, well, it was a byproduct of uh, of the weaver's influence on on our existence. So when they start, when the weavers started creating and patterning what is Earth, they uh, they separated that from the spiritual side of it or the the near umbra that is around it now, uh, creating that and solidifying those rules of of existence that we call physics. Um, they uh, they they created that that separation. And it's as simple as that, right? It's when the weaver got into it, they begat everything. And uh, at the start of it, there's a lot of arguments, too. Again, I don't want to... Let me stop doing that. There, there's more definition coming with that, too. But right now, those are the basics. Now, the umber itself... Excuse me. The gauntlet itself is a, is a thick, membranous thing that the guru often have to push through that feels cold and strange. And they got to have the spiritual strength to push through to get from one side to the other. All sorts of stuff can happen in this membrane, though. Um, like, like, what sort of things am I... I'm having trouble remembering. DJ... What could happen to me for crossing the gauntlet? And let's say it goes bad. Things from the other side start to look at you and you become a beacon of light where they start drawing attention over to you. So what you definitely want to do is not get stuck in the membrane um, because of that. Once again, also just to kind of point out to it, the membrane is literally like the, the cross. It's the edge of what the weaver is willing to kind of give you, at least for the Garo at that moment. You step too close to the end and now you're going to start traversing to the deep umbra, which is a space. That was meant for a purpose. So you trying to cross over and doing it unsuccessfully means that you start drawing attention from things that are outside of the realm of knowledge for most Garu. Fair enough. And, and and you can play with it. I encourage storytellers to definitely play with this concept. They give you an idea and a guideline, and they never really... I mean, there are a couple points where they're like, oh, this will happen, that will happen. Ultimately, they give you indications of where a Garu can disappear to or fall off to or things they can encounter, stuff that could follow them. A lot of hauntings is what I feel. And, and odd placements and alienation can happen, or even nightmares they could suffer while attempting to cross the gauntlet. However, be careful. This can also derail the intent of your scene Yep. for a game. It's often best to just say, hey, you know what? Y'all make it. I got things to do. Daddy telling a story. Right? <laughs> let's, let's get to it. Uh, but we, let's say we make it across, right? And where it's our first telling, we get into the Umbra. How might we, what, what would we find the umbral environment to typically be, Nick, on a, on a given day? 
the uh, the Umbra is really cool in the fact that there is no sun in the Umbra. Points for Amber. Right? So uh, you go into the Umbra, and the moon is basically the sun of the Umbra. If you go into the Umbra and the moon is out where you are and it shines down, it billows it with giant, beautiful, voluminous, bright light that shines down from Luna herself. If that moon is not up, it's like this weird Nordic uh, upper, uh, you know, Arctic Circle haze where the sun never quite reaches the top um, of the of the horizon. You just get this gray hue on the horizon of where you know the uh, the the rest of the uh, of the sky would be, and you got to kind of stumble around and magoo your way through less than perfect lighting. But when that moon is up, you get to see the things around you, and everything in the umbra is its perfect self because it's the spiritual representation of itself right so all the fruit is perfect ripeness right flowers are all at perfect bloom uh the grass is at the height of its late spring freshness and it's it's got that that fragrant smell of just after a dewy morning intelligent beings are are there right and uh so there's spiritual representations of the people around you uh, that are in the real world, but uh, they bear their true natures in the uh, in the umbra. Like when you see them, like if you see a sneaky person, he might have rat-like features uh, in the umbra. Uh, a spirits appear just as they normally are, right? And unless they're a deceptive spirit they'll appear exactly as they are. So a tree spirit will look like a tree, you know, and, and, and different things like that. Whereas, uh, you know, like agents of the worm, of course, are always going to be aiming to deceive you. It may look like that girl in the red dress that uh, catches Neo's eye. I, I was actually thinking Agent Smith when you were saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the things that, that aren't visible in the Umbra are just as important, right? So vampires undead things buildings um spots where there's where there's no life whatsoever um like they've been paved over those just look like barren landscapes um and you can't really see building representations themselves they just kind of appear as like these weird fuzzy hazes um that uh, that have no real spirit to them which which makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways because a vampire is almost not it's not even wild as much as this weaver because that whole immortal thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so yep. it makes a definite hybrid, something strange to fit in. Um, but some cool benefits for kind of going to rocket through here, not really needing an explanation than saying what they are. Uh, night seems to be the theme when you're in the umber, like you said, hence why there's no sun. And that's there. And it benefits a lot in there. Like different types of spirits glow, like to run around and say hi. And you can play with that theme a little bit and they get into it. Um, but... There's something to the spirit body that one must make sense, right? You encounter a spirit in the Umbra. Um, does it have to be a giant ball of glowing light, or can it take a form? And just because it has a form, what 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 is a common link between them, if any, you guys think? I was about to say essence is the only thing I could think of. Right, I, I mean, you're right. You're right in essence, but I'm thinking if I encounter a, a lunar spirit and it's just appearing as a ball of light, mm-hmm. but then I encounter a frog sitting on a on a on a leaf somewhere, and then I encounter the bubbling brook as a spirit itself, and we know it can talk and it's there. Yeah. Is 
I mean, they visually look different, but are they all just spirits, or is it... I gotta note the differences. Are they all just spirits, or do you have to note the differences? Like, like, are you talking if they're if they're spirits of the wild, if they're spirits of... I guess I'm not tracking. So, if you were in the Ember right now, mm-hmm. and you saw those three things, why would you think that they're not different? Right? Is the spirit of spirit of spirit, or is it the fact that, okay... That's a brook. That's a light, and that's a thing. They're all clearly different uh, spirits. I, I would. I know yeah. where you're at. I would think that. Well, all the spirits are different, right? Because they all represent different things. They are fundamentally uh, different, even if they're all composed of the same spiritual stuff. So, my young Theurge, what are their commonalities then? Um, they're full of numinosis I... that you might need to eat. I don't. <laughs> All right. So, so I run up and I stab a ball of light. Can I? Can I run up and stab a ball of light in the umbra? Uh, you are partly yeah. spirit, so yeah. Yeah, Nick. Right? I absolutely can. Yeah. I can. Is it gonna bleed? Oh yeah. Huh? I, I mean, uh, the uh, the the actual spirit itself. No, but will you bleed? Oh God, yeah. So, so um, we're saying the the spirit doesn't have any reflective damage at all when you go and attack it. No, it will. It will get hurt. It loses spiritual energy, or what we like to call gnosis. Right? Here's here's that pause and what you guys don't know. Nobody really ever addresses this. Right? And it's not that it's different in every story until they don't directly say it. We know that when you attack... First off, let me clarify some of this. There is some common traits of spirits. We know a spirit is composed of essence, you heard it said. Mm-hmm. And they compartmentalize them in a series of different traits across rage, gnosis, and willpower. And that's really the only stats they get in addition to their specific powers. This is all crunch. Mm-hmm. At its whole, they're telling you a spirit is spiritual essence. But you, you are a hybrid of your physical meets your spiritual. And you too are composed of some of these essences, so you as well uh, can be affected and harmed as they can be affected and harmed. And why you're in the umber itself. So if you can bleed, does that spirit? Not necessarily. I would almost argue no. I think, because by the description of it, when you attack a spirit, it gets weakened. It gets tired. When it's tired enough, it lays into a dormant state when you defeat it. Right there in the spot. A fall over on the ground. Is it torn up and thrown? I think as colorful as you want to say it. I don't think if we tear up the frog, it's going to look like bloody bits everywhere. It's going to look like we almost, we, we tear up a spirit of a frog. And its bits are faded and seen through lying here and there. But not in a gory fashion as much as that spirit chooses to show. Because it's composed of the same spiritual essence as the brook. And the same spiritual essence as the light. Right? We're trying to break it down to its yep. basic forms. So, in that regard, that's what I'm getting at. That's like the, almost a surefire test. And it's some strange things that they, they play with here too. When you're a theurge in the umber and you see these things and you're taking the gifts to recognize what a spirit is and what's going on, that's some of the ways you can uh, when you when you interact with them. And I think that's one of the coolest aspects of the umber itself. Um, there's arguments to state that any spirit you encounter, they're all part of the same great spirit. Gaia? And it blows me away. I don't know if you want to say it's Gaia at all. right? I have no idea because then that gets into the realm of, well, that means the Gaia is worm. We already went over that. Mm-hmm. She is. She created it. Yep. Right? That is her. So, wait a minute. Guy created the werewolves to counter the humans, and what are we doing in the Umbra dancing with all this other stuff? 
Right? Aren't they meant to be here? Product of one, product of the other? Well, if you look at it from the angle of, we messed up. We, the guru, messed up, and now there's an imbalance. That imbalance is creating things that should not be. With me? Mm-hmm. So now, Gaius kicking out some part of her that shouldn't be running around, and it's this these worm, bane, whatever, worm, weaver, whatever, sometimes wild. Now we got to go through and take care of that as we got to watch the humans and hope they don't make it worse. And so they are manifesting and taking these forms and doing everything else. And I, I personally think that's the challenge to where with the apocalypse is uh, understanding that concept. Because even playing it as long as I have and going through it with folks, at least I feel it can get confusing. It's uh, it's definitely not shallow. It, that take that right. So it's um, it, if you're used to your your D and D campaign where somebody comes in, says here bag of gold, and then points to a hill and says kill everybody on it. That's not what this game is. There's there's things to consider in, in this game. There's deep history and story and and creation to everything here. And along with that. We're looking at here that this is a spiritual reality, but still a reality unto itself. I.e., when you get to the side of the fence, you need to pay attention to the rules of the realm. Mm. Whatever they are, they will affect you. And knowing is half the battle, right? It's how you stay alive. But to this end, there's some commonalities, right? They have uh, have domains to look out for, and uh, these realms are rather interesting. Um, When they mention domains, though, what are we talking about, Nick? Domains are these, uh, they're, they're tiny little areas that uh, almost have the, the magnetism of the, of the other realms around them. So if, if say, we're, we're pulled into that, that earth and then outside it's spinning around there somewhere is the, uh, the realm of the fae that just kind of is stuck out there. There's a magnetic force there that, that kind of pulls in that area of the umbra that is, that is connected near that is going to start to represent features of that realm known as Arcadia. So you'll start to see things like magic become real in these tiny little areas of the Umbra where it starts to take on those properties. If another one of those realms is hell, you're going to start to see hell-like features represented in your Umbra. And this and this gets deep, right? There's uh, all sorts is what we're going to say. Uh, a lot more than to dive deep and, and hope to hold your attention, but... Uh, the book outlines places for your players to go and encounter that might be entire games unto, or stories unto themselves about just, just to get there. And you might be heading these places to learn from an ancestor. Maybe the Fae have knowledge you need. Um, there's like the Abyss, if you wanted to go that far. There's there's a bunch. And yep. they each have their own theme, their own rules, their own cosmos. But wait, there's more. Because beyond, beyond these domains, we're talking about Deep Umbra. And this is where a lot of people kind of lose steam, right? There's a lot of folks that play Werewolf I know I talk to that don't even like addressing the Deep Umbra, <laughs> right? It's one of those things where it's like, ah, like, like we're all good. Like, you have no need to go there. And uh, I won't say that you have no need to go there. I'm not here to judge that. But there is a place where uh, Werewolves uh, can go to to contact larger and more aspect concepts of spiritual energy and entities. Yep. And, and that's the easiest way to represent it. You mentioned gravity. There, There's a spirit of gravity. Most likely yep. through the deep umbra. And it probably has its own realm. It, as baffling as that is, 
It's as if the world's on the back door to escape into the spiritual representation of all of reality. Right? That's another way to look at it when you get past of what we know as reality's spiritual reflection. And it goes on. And I know right now, we sound like 420 went great today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's... <laughs> but that is distinctly what this book outlines for you. And there are people, an auspice yep. entirely dedicated to knowing these terms back to front that will forever seem interesting as you throw out these conundrums and puzzles to figure out where things are from. And that's what the theurge is for. Yep. And every, every, I'd say every guru needs to know what the near umber is. That's because you're jumping back and forth, and we'll get into that in a second. But for the most part, the higher end terms, the realms, Arcadia, deep umbra, those are terms you just leave that old theurge. You just let them ponder that by the campfire when they need a favor. Let them go and find a new pair of slippers made by some weaver spirit that can only be found when you please grandfather time in the edge of the world. That, it's sure. like having a friend who's really into sailing, right? And then they got all these terms like, oh, this is the port and this is the uh, this is the aft and whatever. You're like, yeah, cool. Let's go for a boat ride. <laughs> And they're like, all right, well, well, could you crease the sail on the jib? And they're like, ah, uh, no, I'm here for the boat ride. Good job. <laughs> I don't know what kind of awesome guy would be that honest with his friend. It sounds to me that that person just there for the boat ride was just there to support his buddy in his hobby of enjoying the sail, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, true, uh, a true friend. Like a good pack mate. Theurge wants to go on this mythical sail in the Umbra? No problem. It's your boat. You get the sail. You go ahead and put it to Port Afton. Who gives a damn? Just saying. I don't know who you are in this story, Nick, but I know who I am. So we're just <laughs> <laughs> going to keep that going. All right, so we're going to go down to now how we travel this Umbra. Because this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Help me out, DJ Brunch. This gets insane. If I'm in the real world, how the hell do I get to, like, Arcadia? Um, well, you have to, if you're in the real world, you have to, like we talked about before, cross the gauntlet, right? But to go into the deeper umber, you have to find uh, what are known as anchorheads, right? Let's pump brakes early. Cross the gauntlet. How do I do that? Sidestep. You gotta step sideways. you sidestep? Yeah, but saying sidestep is like saying just cross the gauntlet, right? So how does that work? What is it? Is it? If I never heard that phrase before, what's stepping sideways, DJ? Help them out. Stepping sideways is what Garu actually have to use. It's a it's the term coined in order for them to be able to move from the, the skinlands, the fleshlands, into the spirit world itself or the near unway. Um, rather than near umbra. My apologies. Um, typically speaking, what people use, or rather the people as they know themselves to be, use are reflective services, whether it be a pool of water, a mirror, anything that kind of reflects it. Because once again, it's all concept-based. It's abstract. They are part of spirit, so to have it represent accordingly, that reflective surface will do. Um, and it helps them shift from one plane to the next. That, that seems pretty legit. Right, I'd say to do that, but... Um, what if I have somebody who really sucks at getting across in my pack? Right, you have, like, the new turn that's trying to, like, sidestep by opening up their camera and trying to do it from, like, a selfie. Right. Or like, <laughs> well, we already talked about that, right? This is this is when you get caught. <laughs> right, you can, you can get caught, but what could prevent that? You know, just have your theorge open the way, or whoever has the highest gnosis. Right. Have them lead the group. Right. Every link's hands, the highest, you know, typically the theorge will, will open yep. the way and hold it open for everybody else to go across. Mm-hmm. They thought of that, a real mentor system. Or group play. 
group play. Or you could use Enosis to just jump across, right? Just saying. This is true. So, all right. So travel times can vary going through. We know that about crossing the gauntlet. And I'm just making sure I get on my itinerary plan as we go to Arcadia that Bryn John's going to continue on. <laughs> and all right. So I know how to get across. And you've led the way, Bryn John. I'm across with you. Where are we going from here? Uh, from here, we are trying to find uh, what's known as an anchor head. This is a place uh, somewhere in the Umbra that is uh, in, in some way close to whatever place in the deep Umbra we're trying to get to, right? Some place where, like I believe Nick talked about earlier, right? If it gets too close to, uh, to Arcadia, magic will become real. If we are seeing that, we know we are heading in the right place. Okay, so I go from the real world sidestep across. I'm now in the penumbra, mm-hmm. but I could also just jump to the anchor head and be in the deep umbra. Oh no, you can't just jump to it. You got to hunt that down. You got to find it. <laughs> oh no, you're screwed. I, There's a lot of walking. <laughs> I, I hope you know a good spiritual guide yeah. to find these uh, these anchor heads, or you've been there before and just happen to know. Hey, underneath my root cellar. There's definitely a trod that goes to the Feylands. I have uh, I have come across many a player that uh, will stumble at this point because they always fall into that uh, stereotype my mom always complained about in that they never ask for directions, right? Usually there's some spirit around that can actually tell you, hey, you're looking for over here. Uh, that's probably going to entail another small adventure, right? Pain. So bef- bef- before we clown on it, what we're referring to is that when you cross into the... First off, I'm in the physical world. I cross to the near Umbra. It's not necessarily going to be exact after a few feet, right? I may cross in my living room because that's where I hung the mirror for the reflective surface, but I so much as leave my house. We don't know what that is actually, how many feet I'm traversing or if that actually walks into a realm or what's going on. And there's signs to spot and things to do, but storytellers are almost free to be devious or interesting when it comes to this as plot chooses. And that's one of those, you know, wink, touch your nose moments. Uh, for a lot of players to kind of go at your theory and be like, you got point, buddy. At least that's where we're going, right? And uh, there's different methods, right? Nick pointed out a spiritual guide. Didn't say it had to be the theory, but maybe someone knows a spirit. Maybe someone actually has uh, an entity already on hand to lead you. Maybe it's a fetish, you know, a, a magically made uh, device that can help us get across to and from. And that's, yeah. and that's what we're hinting at, right? Because it's an excellent segue um, when we talk about fetishes, are they just magical objects? No, no, they're not just magical objects. They are. Um, they're almost. I, I wanted to say they're almost like holy uh, objects for the group, but they have like a lot of reverence. These are objects that have an actual spirit taken and bound into it. And there's many ways to do this, right? That's uh, when we talk about the animistic aspect that everything has a spiritual representation. This is talking about taking a mundane item. Or a series of items. And there's something that makes them pure or special or what have you. And they don't go through a detailed super in-depth process here. uh, But we're just going to get it so she can chew into a little bit. If I take a cell phone and decide I'm going to put a spirit into it, it's not enough. Right? It's not going to be enough. It's not really going to be as strong. Because i got to go to a spirit, convince the spirit, or summon one, or however I get it. And convince it to inhabit this phone. Uh, to be of any benefit and somehow make it an item that uh, it's, it's well, it's worth using. There is a process, and it's, it kind of goes into that and written down on, uh, on what to do. The book gives you a series of fetishes that are made to give you a strong idea. Mm-hmm. But these spirits, once bound inside, um, their powers change. A spirit in the buff, or free, we should say, 
vastly more powerful than when they're placed in the fetish. However, the fetish may, well, will do something unique for you once it's in there, whether it's forced to be in there or it's asked to be in there. Although, typically, the ones asked have more powerful effects mm-hmm. when it comes to yep. that. Some are sacred to the guru. Most are sought by agents of the worm. Um, it's not that the worm can't create its own fetishes. You can imagine, not even they want to deal with the nastiest of spirits that they got on their side to try to force, like, how are you going to force some of those spirits that do anything for you without great risk to you or heavy casualties? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I might corrupt a spirit hammer that I get tired of this get offenders using because I'm going to promise them more war, right? There's more war mm-hmm. with me than it is hanging out with these gets whose hands are tied. And I promise you more get blood <laughs> to prove yourself worthy if you come work over here. Who knows? Maybe it's pissed. You know, the get tend to conquer versus ass. That could be one of them. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you have it, though, you have the hammer. It's there. Do fun, your fetish, and it, it'll do what you need it to do. I'm hammer obsessed here. Now, when you have a fetish, where will... You can't just... I can't give it to, to, to Bob working at the gas station. And he's to turn around and go, this is a pretty cool hammer. And then shatter half his building. Because <laughs> light, lightning discharges, and he hits it. He, did, he didn't know how to handle it right. You know? It's not going to work for him. He's got to activate it. Mm-hmm. And what that means is he has to use his spiritual energy, his gnosis, to be in tune with the spirit to activate it and thus use it freely. That is a mechanic in a role, but it tells you that unless they have an ability that lets them do it, that item is inert in their hands. Um, that's, well, not all fetishes. Some may dormant have an effect, but not their big one. Mm-hmm. And that's the, uh, the effect to them. But there's one thing that people forget about. If I'm being chased by a bunch of big, 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 big bad nasties and they're going to eat me and kill us and the whole pack's tired and we're beat up mm-hmm. and we got to get away and I run to a corner, what's going to happen? Well, is there anything, DJ, I can do to, to look before I leap into the Umbra? You could peek. You could definitely peek across and it's one of the things that's definitely suggested so that your storyteller doesn't get the better of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's one thing. Uh, it's definitely... Uh, being able to just take a, a quick look around, um, there are mechanics for it as well, but normally speaking, your eyes would be able to turn a specific color as you start moving um, to see what may or may not be behind. Once again, this is all determined as well by the gauntlet and you know where you're currently located in the gauntlet that would prevent you from doing so. Um, one thing that we didn't mention a little bit is the Weaver has a very strong hold over the gauntlet itself, so places that are more urbanized and or structured are going to be harder for you to look through because the Weaver did everything it could to kind of solidify that structure. And yet, the closer you are to the wild in which structure does not exist, uh, you'll be able to peek over. And so you can see where this becomes an issue uh, for many werewolves uh, who happen to start up in an urban setting. You know, How easy is it to peek in a certain location? Is it easier at a park versus being inside of an office building? That's one of the things to take into consideration there. I also think that that peeking is... Well, Nick, would you say peeking's done all the time? No, uh, I, I wouldn't. It's uh, It's dangerous. When you're peeking, you can't see what's going on around you. So somebody could just come up and uh, whack you in the head with a with a hammer, or uh, you know. And, and when you do peek, you don't really get a solid idea of what you're looking at. You get a rough estimate. Details are not quite there for you. Yeah, and not only are details not quite there for you. There's there's stuff. There's stuff that happens. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I get frustrated with this topic because it makes me laugh. Uh, why does it frustrate you to laugh? Because when I think about it, as a storyteller more often than a even when I'm a player, I don't remember to peek. Don't even think of it. I leave peeking to the pros. I leave that to Thirges. They're the ones that got to look before you leap. But I often think of this. 
If, um, I, I might have to do that at some point because I don't trust a situation or a danger or what have you. And uh, I have to jump a fence. And uh, <laughs> I have to jump a fence. And uh, all right, so you might jump a fence. You want to look to make sure you're not landing on a bunch of stuff that could cut you or mess you up. It's sort of the same lines. Just know that you could do it. Um, and that's a good thing. And there's there's more, right? But this is more pertaining to crunch. We we hit pretty much all the the elements on the head of what the first book dives into to prepare you to play World of the Apocalypse. Uh, but before I totally skedaddle, um, Nick, can you talk to us about the odd renowned system to close us out? Uh, yes. Um, so in this, in the original version of the game. The, the renowned system still had the normal stuff that it had, you know, like the uh, the honor, the glory, and the wisdom. Uh, but in here, it doesn't really matter what type of renown you get, as long as you have a discussion with your storyteller to make sure you're trying to get the kind that you're looking for, the kind that fits your role play, and, and those points get awarded. But if you look at the chart, and you don't see the D&D experience chart, you're not paying attention. They're, they're awarding thousands or, or thousands of renown at a time. And then it takes uh, tens of thousands of renown to, to advance to like the next rank. And it could be any, any type of renown, of course. So uh, if, you're, if you're the lowly theorist who has like a, a bullheaded Getafenris Arun leading the charge, you don't have to worry about not getting that wisdom renown. It's, uh, it, it's going to be plenty of glory for you to go around and it'll work just as well. Um, but they do still have the normal stuff in here. You can still challenge a, a rank above you and, and gain your renown that way. Force mentorship, th- those kinds of cool things. How much if I slay a Balrog, though? Does it give us a renown for that? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's 3,000 glory. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing chump change for that guy. Well done. Well done. But hey, be sure to check out your battle map uh, before you do that. All right. <laughs> Before we check the battle map, how about we discuss what the next book is? Off the top of the head, I don't know. Let me look real quick and grab that. It's always good to give uh, get in the habit back of uh, telling folks what we're going to be doing. I believe our next book is Rite of Passage. It absolutely is. After this, we're going to dive right into Rite of Passage flat out. Um, that book should be rather entertaining. I believe that's a, that, that's a tale of a sample of a Rite of Passage to give you an idea of what to do. We'll see what's in it. We'll check it out. And uh, we'll give that to you next week. Uh, Until then, folks, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for enduring a grueling three-part process. We wanted to make sure we hit these points. Um, So, Because we know people go back and re-listen. And we hope it preps you. We hope you listen to this and see what goes on. But do remember, each edition we go through, we're going to come through and tell you the differences. So this is going to serve the base. Going forward, we're only going to note the changes in those base books. So obviously we had second edition. And uh, in revised, right? And then to, the, of course, the 20th anniversary. Um, and we're going to go through and bounce through those. And that'll when we'll get to them when we get to them. Uh, so, thank you for listening, folks. Um, again, Nick, DJ, Brentron, thank you for joining me. It has been a pleasure. Likewise. Fantastic. And I, I release you to the wild of Gaia. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25 years VTM.com on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website, 
www.25yearsvtm.com. If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade.